the, the study that I'm the lead author on was my dissertation project. And I'm super proud of it because it was not easy. And I um, came up with the idea kind of by myself. It wasn't like normally you have some influence from your advisor or where there's funding. This was totally me thinking about what I was interested in, what I wanted to study. And so I saw it through to the finish. It was kind of a nightmare at times. Um, <laughs> but I studied appetite hormones in elite female runners um, okay. during different intensities of exercise. And so it was cool for a few reasons. One, no one studies females because it's a little bit more complex. Um, everyone, because you have to account for the menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. And so a lot in research, a lot of um, studies focus on males. And so that was kind of a unique aspect to my, my study. And then two, using elite athletes is super hard because they're really particular about their training and mm -hmm. their nutrition. And, you know, it's hard to, to ask them to put some of that aside to participate in research. So it was a little tricky, um, but it, it was a really cool study. And I'm, um, you know, the findings can be applied to um, what I do as a runner myself and um, as a, you know, someone who gives other people advice um, in nutrition and, and coaching. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to soulpre.com. Today on the Smart Athlete Podcast, my guest has numerous podium and top finishes at various ultras. She currently holds the course records at the Bandera 100K and Lake Sonoma 50 miler, as well as being the champion at the Western States 100 in 2014. She holds her PhD in nutrition and exercise science. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stephanie Howe-Violet. Hi, <laughs> thanks for having me. We have a little bit of delay, so if anybody's watching and there's like little pauses, yeah. we're, we're trying to make this happen from there's across the world. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like the, um, you know, the miracle of science, you're in the middle of Europe right now, I'm in the middle of the United States, so you know, even if there's a couple second delay, like we're doing okay. It's not as bad as, um, you know, even when, like, when people are doing weather reports and there's that huge delay with your news station and like the weather caster out five miles from them. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just pretend it's that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what are you doing in, in Europe this summer? Are you, are you training, you're racing, you're coaching, you're just on vacation. What, what are you doing? Over um, there? I'm definitely here. I was I was planning to be racing UTMB um, at the end of August, but I had surgery. Uh, I had surgery on my Achilles um, in April, and so I I'm not going to be ready to run 100 miles by the end of August. So I'm just here. I mean, hoping to do a shorter race, but also just training and working. So uh -huh. it, it works out all right. I, I love it over here. Was that like an acute injury that led to that or? I mean, sort of, no, actually not acute. It's been chronic. Achilles are my, my area of, um, my special area that gets injured easily on me. Okay. And, um, it was, uh, kind of a Achilles surgery is misleading. It was more in my heel. Um, so it's, it's kind of a long time coming great surgery, but, um, need some downtime after that. What does recovery look for something like that? Do you, are you like completely non-weight bearing for a while? 
Well, if I got the surgery in the U.S., I would have been, but I came over to Sweden um, because the the best surgeon is there. And so I was walking um, 50% weight the next day, but um, that's not normal. Uh, And it it was more of a minor surgery. So the recovery was was pretty quick, honestly. And I was able to run within six weeks, but, um, you know, turns out that... uh, you probably shouldn't start ramping up for races um, <laughs> because now my my other one is a little bit angry, but it was just a good reminder of, uh, okay, back off. So now I'm not training for anything. I'm just running bits and biking um, a bit right now. Yeah. I think it's hard. It's like you're, you know, your head's so used to, okay, yeah, I can go out for 20 miles, 30 miles or whatever. And then you, know, you have the surgery and it's like, no, my five may even be pushing it or, you know, whatever the limits were for you. I think it's a hard mental shift sometimes. It is. And I just miss the freedom of being able to go out and run. That's how I clear my head. And so when I could finally run, I was like, I'm just, I'm going to do this. This is a bad idea. I'm going to do this. But um, my body gave me a a not so subtle reminder that you got to be a little, a little more patient. So I am, I'm being patient. (laughs) I, yeah, I think, is especially, I mean, with me, it was the same way. I um, I crashed at a, a triathlon last year and shattered my collarbone, had to have surgery, and was off for several months from that. And it was definitely like, almost like a life shift. I, I don't know that I'm, not, I'm quite the same um, mm-hmm. past that, just because, like, life had to change for a considerable amount of time. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, it's never easy (laughs) yeah yeah so you're gonna race utmb can you tell me about that i'm not huge into ultras so i don't know all about each particular race so what i mean what's the draw of that rate that race for you so um utmb ultra trail de mont blanc is um 177 kilometer race around mont blanc and it's pretty cool because it goes through france switzerland and italy um and it's it's kind of one of the like if western states is the iconic race of the u.s mm-hmm. utmb is the iconic race of of europe or france and it's um it's much more technical well it's not that technical it's technical for u.s standards but much more um mountainous um a lot of vertical and right. um it very rarely do you get a race that's a big huge loop um and so it's uh it's pretty it's a pretty awesome race the scene mm-hmm. over here is amazing um and it's just like you know something you want to do as an ultra runner i think well with i mean once you get to that distance how many people are at the start line oof this one like three thousand. okay um, it's huge yeah i mean and most of them are euro euro runners this is like you know one of the things they they do they're you know more active in the mountains it's it's not like a running race like western states um it's more like a lot of hiking with poles and then like you know trying to stay on your feet downhill so it's actually a a huge race okay um you're not anywhere where you get stuck inside for the winter for training are you normally Me, yeah. Um, I am. Well, I live in Bend, Oregon. So okay. yeah, we have a lot of snow in the winter. Um, okay. I but I, I ski, so I I do that in the winter time. 
Okay, well, I was talking to um, uh, another gentleman who's he's a head coach of Team USA Minnesota, and he uh, does marathons and ultras. And so since he's in Minnesota, not always the best weather in the wintertime. And he was saying that, like, he was getting ready for – I can't remember if it was Western States 100 or what it was, but it, it was a varying terrain course, a lot up and down. And he was talking about he would take his treadmill and pitch the back of the treadmill up so that he could practice running downhill with a treadmill. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I was wondering if if you did the weird treadmill antics or Um, or if you had, like, interesting No, you know what? I've only run in a treadmill maybe 10 times in my life. Um, I don't really do that. I like to be outside. Um, I'd rather, like, do something different than run on a treadmill. But um, that's partly why I come over to Europe is to prepare. I don't think there's anywhere in the U.S. you can – enjoyably prepare for a race like this uh, maybe the san juan mountains in colorado but yeah they're just uh, under so much more snow so um yeah i i come over here to to make my training a little bit more fun i just much more prefer to be in the mountains anyway and um yeah. the u.s is lacking in that sense so um yeah i don't i don't do the treadmill thing but i know a lot of people who do successfully um mm-hmm. and you do have to manipulate your training environment to to come over here and do well yeah so i mean i know for a lot of people it's going to be almost like a mysterious or or, or I'm, I'm reticent to say magical but um kind of an ideal situation where you have the freedom to go yeah, I'm going to Europe for the summer. So, like, how does that work for you professionally? You, you entirely <laughs> remote, I assume. Did you catch that, or was it too delayed? I think I missed part of that, but I think you're asking how does it work for me to come over to Europe for the summer and yep. make life work. So I work for myself. Um, I have a sports nutrition business, um, and I do a little bit of coaching, mostly sports nutrition. And so mm-hmm. I, when I come over here, I just work on um, – it actually works out well for me because I can do emails first thing in the morning, then I go train. And then I work from like 4 to 10 or 11 p.m. Um, to overlap with the U.S. So it, it works out pretty well. And while I'm over here, I usually try to pick up a little bit of work um, doing nutrition at just like different um, like organizations, just something outside of the U.S. So it's pretty mm-hmm. fun for me to, to be over here. But, yeah, it's definitely like it sounds like, oh, Stephanie's off in Europe just like playing around. But <laughs> no, I actually work um, while I'm here. I my husband um, at one point was like, you need to put some photos of you working on Instagram because all my photos are like me running in the Alps and like, no, yeah, I, I actually, like, I actually do work off so, in the mountains. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I mean, I like working. Um, I'm not like, you know, I, I, I love free time too, but I love what I do. And so it's not really something that I, I look forward to it. Um, like I, I love the clients I work with. I love talking about nutrition. So it's not like something that's, um, you know, holding me back. I, I actually really enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, was the whole situation by design or did you just kind of like stumble into it? I know I designed kind of my life to be more flexible for competing post-collegially, but I don't know yeah. if everybody does that or if it's just kind of like a, a happy circumstance. 
You know, I think I, I'm willing to take chances um, and seek lifestyle. Um, this is not what I saw myself doing. I went through PhD, like undergrad, master's PhD, straight through. Um, so that was like 10 years of post, post-grad mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I worked as a professor for a while. And it just, it wasn't the best fit for me. I, I thought that's what I wanted to do, but I don't love lecturing. And so yeah. I started thinking about what else I could do, how I could use this degree, because I want to use my PhD. Jeez, I spent so long. <laughs> you spent so much time and money oh, and energy. Gosh. Yeah. Um, and then the running thing opportunity kind of picked up. So I had um, an opportunity with the North Face to, you know, be a, I guess, professional athlete. And so I kind of just like designed this niche for myself um, that's worked out really well. And I like to think of it as like I put in my time of like being a PhD student and like going through that. And now I'm kind of living the good life. Um, But it's it's due to a lot of hard work and being creative and willing to take a risk of starting my own business. And, you know, I, I left job where I had full-time benefits and, you know, like I, it was just like really secure, um, to like try this and it's been really great. Yeah. Did you have any like fallback plan if things didn't work out? Not necessarily. (laughs) Um, I, but I, I've never been someone who, you know, I struggled to work or like find a way to make things work. Like I, you know, if I didn't have a job, I would work at a coffee shop until I found a job. Um, and I guess my fallback plan right now is I'll teach at a university, um, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty good fallback plan. (laughs) Uh, and, and I may want to go back to academia at some point. Yeah. Um, speaking of that, I, I saw you had, um, I'll say have published or been published in conjunction with a few different studies that all seem to focus around like um, exercise intensity and appetite. Can you kind of walk me through what you were doing, like what the difference between those studies were? Um, so I think I, I, I missed part of that, but the okay. my main study, were you asking about the different papers I've published? Yes. And yep. Yeah. Well, I, some most of those papers, I was not the lead author. I was participating in research, helping out. The, the study that I'm the lead author on was my dissertation project. And I'm super proud of it because it was not easy. And I um, came up with the idea kind of by myself. It wasn't like normally you have some influence from your advisor or where there's funding. This was totally me thinking about what I was interested in, what I wanted to study. And so I saw it through to the finish. It was kind of a nightmare at times. Um, (laughs) But I studied appetite hormones in elite female runners um, during different intensities of exercise. And so it was cool for a few reasons. One, no one studies females because it's a little bit more complex. Um, everyone, because you have to account for the menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. And so a lot in research, a lot of um, studies focus on males. And so that was kind of a unique aspect to my my study. And then two, using elite athletes is super hard because they're really particular about their training and mm-hmm. their nutrition. And, you know, it's hard to, to ask them to put some of that aside to participate in research. So it was a little tricky, um, but it it, it was a really cool study. And I'm, um, you know, the findings can be applied to um, what I do as a runner myself and um, as a, you know, someone who gives other people advice um, in nutrition and and coaching. 
So I'm assuming, what, what did you find? Like, I assume oh, you're, yeah. the way you're talking about it, it seems like your results were statistically significant. So like, what, what did you they find were, out? They were, although it, you know, it wasn't, um, there was, okay. So the, the significant part was we know that appetite is suppressed post exercise. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's important because there's a window of time that you need to refuel to adequately restock your glycogen stores. Um, mm -hmm. and it's about 40 to 60 minutes. And so in this study, we, we measured two different intensities to kind of mimic like an easy training day and a hard training day, mm -hmm. and, um, then measured the appetite hormones, um, at every 20 minutes, uh, for 60 minutes post exercise. And we found what we were expecting that, um, those appetite hormones are, um, altered in the direction of suppression, um, until about 60 minutes post exercise and subjective appetite is doing the same. So people don't want to eat, um, until about 60 minutes, but that's too late. So right. that was like the significant part of it. Um, we thought we would see more suppression with higher intensity exercise than moderate. Um, and we're talking like 80% VO2 max versus 60% mm -hmm. VO2 max. Okay. Um, but there, that actually wasn't significant. However, it was um, trending higher after hard intensity workouts, which makes sense because you do a hard workout, you're, you're less likely to eat. You, your stomach doesn't feel like yeah. Like you want to eat. So I think if we were able to do a like 85%, 90% VO2 max, um, which the IRB <laughs> would not let me do, um, that's a committee that approves all research you do on intensity human subjects. Too high. Um, and you have to get everything through them. And so I wanted to do a little bit higher intensity, but they wouldn't let me. So um, I think if a future study, if they looked at that, they would find the that difference as well. So um we did in my study, but still really, really cool to actually see that research in women. Um, and elite women are similar to elite men. Whereas when you have sedentary or overweight, obese women and men, they, um, they have different responses. So okay. the women, um, are more robust to, um, their hormones are more robust to, um, have them, their appetite is, is not as suppressed. So they want to eat post-exercise, whereas elite women are like elite men. So that's a finding that was really significant to the, the current literature at the time. Okay. Um, let's see if I can remember both these questions. So why did the IRB say no to higher intensity? Do you know? Oh, gosh. Well, the, my IRB was um, not used to doing research um, in exercise performance studies. I was at Oregon State and they were doing uh, more nutrition um, and not really exercise science. And so to them, it was like, you know, a really, this was like pushing a lot of limits, like doing all these blood draws, doing VO2 max. Um, so they just thought that that was too high. Um, that's not normal. <laughs> to yeah, have an IRB, like... not like you do that, but they they can be a little bit sticky with things so mm -hmm. um that was I, unfortunate yeah i mean i know they're trying not to like push things into unethical bounds but it seems like especially if you're working with elite athletes like they have normal work <laughs> at 85 90 percent vo2 max. it's not like saying we're gonna hit you at 105 percent vo2 max for as long as you can go you know like right <laughs> this was like we fought this for a year um, to get get it approved and um, once they said yes to 
pretty much the study I wanted to do. Then we were like, okay, let's go with it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'd love to work with, you know, an IRB committee that's really used to these kind of studies. Um, in Europe, they have a lot of them, like go to Frankfurt (laughs) or Copenhagen. They're like, do whatever. Um, (laughs) just kidding. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, you got to find the balance too. So, so how do you, um, one of the things I'm, I'm curious about with the studies is like, did you control for humidity and uh, temperature, like ambient temperature? Um, during the du- like during, during the, the the testing. Yeah, so it was in a like an exercise physiology lab. So okay. yeah, we controlled for temperature and um, we controlled for diet for forty eight hours before diet and uh-huh. physical activity. So that was another tough thing with elite runners. Let's say, yeah. please take the day off before. Um, and we didn't want to like modify their fueling. Um, so we asked them to just mimic what they did from their first, um, session to their second session, um, rather than, you know, tell them they can eat this and they can eat that because I wanted it to be more of an applied, um, study. So, you know, you have to find that balance too, between controlling too much so you can see significance and, you know, really have your variables stand out and finding the application piece because no one's going to just follow a, a diet that you give them. So when athletes are more in their habitual, you know, um, lifestyle, they're probably going to, their performance is going to be, you know, more real to them. So mm-hmm. we controlled as much as we could without really going overboard with, um, changing the athletes, um, training and nutrition. Yeah. I think what I think about is, um, so I raced last weekend and it was pretty hot. So like I overheated, it was a triathlon. I overheated by the run and I just couldn't run very hard. And then by the end, I kind of got to the point where I definitely didn't want to eat and like, like Gatorade, I could take a little bit in, but it's like, I don't want to say I wanted to pass out, but I definitely wanted to take a nap or something. So is, this is the IRB would definitely say no to this, but I'd be curious to see if you could like crank the humidity up, crank the heat up, and then see mm-hmm. what differences you could find between like fueling during or like see how the appetite changes, um, you know, in that environment saying like no, no fuel for your run versus like that's a control group versus like giving them whatever, whatever it is, whatever sports drink or fuel you want. And then seeing mm-hmm. how that changes, like post um, post run appetite, that might be interesting. There's, um, there's actually some really good studies out of the University of Oregon. Um, mm-hmm. That's actually where I started my PhD, and then I transferred to Oregon State. Okay. Um, but they did a lot on heat and humidity um, in their environmental chamber on mostly cycling because um, that's a little bit easier to yeah. uh, to some of these things. So they they have some some really good good stuff um, that probably came out in uh, 2000 maybe 14 to okay. 2012, 2014. Um, uh, Chris Minson is, uh, the, the, he's not the lead, but he was the, the advisor on these, uh, dissertation projects. So yeah, the, the, it's actually interesting when you start adding variables like heat and humidity, what that does to appetite hormones. Like when I did my study, I, you know, I tried to keep it narrow, but the more you like read into it, the more questions you have, like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do this? And wouldn't it be cool to do this? Mm-hmm. Like if I could just be paid to be a professional student and just do research, like whatever I wanted, that would be my dream job. 
<laughs> so I'm like taking taking offers. If anyone wants to just uh, fund me to you know research all these cool things in sport nutrition and exercise physiology, I'm I'm open to it. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll see what we can do. I, I um I've talked to several guys now that are they're both associated with um, universities or colleges, and they're both the gentlemen I talked to are studying like things going on in the gut microbiome in relation to ultra runners. Um, yeah. But they they deal with a lot of like GI distress and that kind of stuff. Is there, you know, mm -hmm. do you work with any kind of correlation between the two GI distress, appetite? Like, do, do you come across any of that in the, in the studies you're doing? Um, yeah. And I mean, I'm not doing, I'm not currently doing any research right now, yeah, but I, a lot I, I of like, um, <laughs> well, you know, yes, I come across, I do lit reviews all the time in this stuff because I'm working with a, most athletes who come to me for help with sports nutrition are having problems mm -hmm. and having a lot of GI distress. And so that's something that, yeah, I'm definitely, um, learning a lot about because there it's kind of a new frontier in terms of like learning how to apply it to each individual. Like we kind of know like that it's important, but when you look at like the studies, it's hard to figure out like, okay, so how do you apply this to person X? Um, so learning about, you know, people's digestion and the foods that they're eating habitually, I think is, is a really important piece. Um, and for me, I've learned, I've done this for a few years now, like you take the science, you take what we know, but then you have to get to know the person and mm -hmm. find out about them because everyone is so unique. Um, and like, you know, their, their genetics and their, what they eat is going to affect their gut biome. And that's going to, you know, cascade trickle effect to what they're fueling with, how it's responding when they're racing. So super mm -hmm. fascinating. It's like, the more I know, the more I learn, the less I know. <laughs> I've kind of seen a couple things recently. Are you are you familiar with uh, Tim Noakes? He's from South Africa. Oh, I lost that part of it. That's okay. Um, do you are you familiar with Tim Noakes? He's from South Africa. I am familiar with Tim Noakes. Um, so he says some i'll say unique things uh as far as if, if i understand it correctly basically carbohydrates bad there's a very small percentage of people that should be eating carbohydrates um but along that line i've also seen somebody else talk about like this idea that certain people are fueled best by fat and fueled best by protein or fueled best by carbohydrates. And there's like these genetic differences that, you know, kind of create these variations in people. Do you come across that? Or do you think there's any credence there? So first of all, I used to be really afraid to say my opinion about this, but um, Tim Noakes <laughs> has not done good science um, as of lately. And a lot of the fat and carbohydrate stuff is, is not valid. And so, mm. Like I kind of, some of his older um, studies, research that he's done on hydration is really fascinating, great. But this, um, this trend that people are latching onto is, is not good science. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, like that's really oversimplifying to say like someone does better on carbohydrate, fat and protein. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, people do better on certain foods, different percentages, but it's not like someone can just eat fat 
and be well fueled. Um, and right now the popular thing is not having carbohydrate and that's so bad for a number of reasons. Um, just to like give one big reason, the brain alone needs 130 grams a day to stay alive. And like a low carbohydrate diet, when you're restricting that much, um, your body's going to break down other sources of fuel, convert it into ketones that your brain can use, but that's mm. not healthy long-term. Um, and then also carbohydrates, like especially fruits and vegetables have so many micronutrients in them. So mm. I really, I really think, you know, we look for this, like nutrition is like one of those things that we look for, like the, the, the trend, like, Oh, just do this, don't do this and you'll be mm -hmm. healthy. But it's more complex than that. And all three nutrients are important. It's not like you can just, you know, eat whatever you want and that you should eat only carbohydrate, but you, you need all three. And, you know, someone might be better with like 30% protein, where someone else might be better with 15% protein, but there is a range. Um, and it's not, it's not all or nothing. I think part of our issue with like nutrition and, and, trying to figure out what our diet is, is first, everybody needs to eat. So then it's partly this struggle of convenience versus what is healthy, but then more so, how do we define healthy? You know, there's this idea yeah. about, I need to be healthy, but it's like, well, well what does that mean? And I like, um, I can't remember if this is, I think it's um, a Google thing. Um, they use KPIs, the key performance indicators, and they say what gets measured gets accomplished. Well, it's like, how do you measure what you know, healthy is? Right. Yeah. I think um, healthy is not a destination. It's like a work in progress. And I think you're healthy when one, it, it's not just like your body um, demographics. It's not like your, your weight, your body fat percentage. Um, it's more holistic than that. Um, and I think being healthy is when you're well fueled. Um, and that's, you know, really easy to just glaze over, but when you're getting <laughs> all the nutrients, um, when you feel good, you know, right. there's that, too. um, when you're able to train and recover and not have your body be run down. Um, and when you have a healthy relationship with food, I think that's super important. And that's like maybe underemphasized in like when we describe being healthy, I think someone who is super restrictive, they may look healthy from the outside, but that's not holistically a, a good sustainable place to be in. So, mm -hmm. um, I, I think it, you know, taking a step back and we look at numbers, but then like looking at the big picture, like how do we, how do we define like just feeling good and, and feeling like, you know, uh, mental, physical, spiritual, if you will, um, mm -hmm. those all matter. So, and for each person, it's going to be different. Bodies are different. Um, and I really don't believe in like race weight and that sort of thing. Like, I think there's like a, a, a range for everyone, but it's more a feeling like when you feel strong, when you feel fit and for females, it's much easier to know this balance because if you have a normal menstrual cycle, that's, that's a sign that your body is healthy and you're mm -hmm. kind of optimized. Um, males don't have that. So it's, <laughs> they, it's a little more tricky to find that balance. Um, because it's it's easier to go too low without your body telling you this isn't good. So, right. Yeah. I. Yeah. It's, I've it's, been there it's a myself. big. Question. Yeah. And I, yeah. I talked to um, 
at least one guy, and he, he was saying, uh, so the, the testosterone scale of healthy is from like 300 to 1,000. He was down to like 100, and um, he was talking about, why did I just forget his name? Uh, American American marathoner. Help me out, Stephanie. Right. Yes. He was talking about Ryan Hall's, <laughs> Ryan Hall's testosterone being in the toilet. I don't know whether he said this facetiously, but the name uh, the guy I talked to his name is Matt Bach. He was saying Ryan measured it like twelve or something one time. I don't know whether that wow. was a, like I don't know if that was an actual number or whether he was just being like it was like twelve, you know, like <laughs> just saying it was way low. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the pictures? And if you Ryan? hear Ryan Hall talk about his health now, mm-hmm. um, he, I mean, he seems in a much better place. Like yeah. he looks great. And I know you can't, you definitely can't judge from, from looking at someone, but I mean, he, he looks like <laughs> he looks healthy and strong and it seems like he is really happy um, and in a much better place. So I think, you know, it, it's, it's unfortunate that we sometimes see elite athletes um, in this place where they're really unhealthy, yet their performance appears to be, you know, the top of the game. Um, so I don't think that's that's necessarily a good message to send. Yeah, well, I think there's a, you know, there's a almost a culture in some aspect in terms of running and like being thin. Thin equals fast. And I don't know yeah. if that's necessarily the case. But it's with, not. You know, with Ryan, he's retired, obviously. So, like, he actually, funny enough, is, like, my size now. We're both 5'10". He's up to, like, 165, which is why I weigh and I race at okay. Um, but, like, I couldn't imagine. I think his bottom weight at peak performance was, like, 127 or something. Just, like, gaunt, tiny. And I just kind of asked myself, like, is it worth doing this to yourself? Um, I, I don't think it is. I mean, I know I don't have like, you know, millions or what, not millions, but like so much prize money riding on this. I just, mm-hmm. I just would never do it to my body. I think I, I'm more, um, not respectful of it, but I just, I want to be able to walk when I'm 50 and I I guess I, I would rather be happy and healthy. Um, and I, I get why they do it. I mean, you know, if, if that's like your career and you're in the spotlight and, it, you know, you have this pressure, but I just, I, I don't know why, but I have this ability to like step back and look at the big picture. And yeah, I, that's a tough, tough situation. Well, and thinking about your kind of mental state, you had said to me, so to, to remind <laughs> both you and, and, and if you're listening, that you won the Western States 100 in 2014, you had said some, something to me along the lines of like, oh, I'm not really a runner or like I'm a pretty casual runner. Like there's something that like, I'm trying to figure out what's going on with this duality in your mind. Cause I, in, to me, in no world do you win the Western States 100 and you're just ca- like a casual, unless you're a genetic freak, I suppose. Well, Maybe that's what's going on. No. And, 
that I, yeah, I shouldn't, shouldn't be that nonchalant. I mean, I train hard. I work really hard. I, my mom calls me a type AAA child. Um, I mean, there's a reason I have a PhD. So I, I do work really hard. I push myself. Um, and when I'm training, I'm serious about it, but I don't let that be the only thing that defines me. So I like when I meet people and they have no idea I'm a runner because Mm -hmm. they get to know me outside of, of running and, you know, I, I do other things as well. And this has become more important to me probably the last three or four years because I've had some injuries. And, you know, when you're injured and like all you do is run, that's a pretty sad state to be in. So I, I like to, you know, run and like love it and train hard, but I also like to be able to disconnect. And, you know, when it, when I when it comes down to it, like no one cares, like it's ultra running, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like in the brand scheme of things. And I honestly don't think I'm any more special than someone who finishes last place. It, like yeah. they're working like that hard. And I, I think that's unique to ultras. Like it's the experience of going through the race. I mean, everyone is going to have a story and, you know, someone who's out there for like double the time, their story is probably going to be even more incredible. <laughs> yeah. I definitely think, think about that and thought about it more when I was doing like half iron distance races. It's like, I'd finish I'll say four and a half hours, give or take. And I would be toasted. Mm-hmm. But then I think about, okay, there's, you know, I'm trying to compete for a podium, but then there's, you know, whoever's going to finish last for the day is going to be out for eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours. Like how much more grueling is that compared to like the four hours I just spent going hard? I know. I know. It's crazy. It's And in ultras, it's even like, more I, I this is really fresh in my mind because I was just at a race called Ronda del Sim and oh. my husband ran and he did fantastic he finished um in 34 hours um he was 10th mm-hmm. and whatever he finished we went to bed the next day we went and had breakfast and lunch I went for like a three-hour bike ride and at dinner that night there's still people finishing like there's mm-hmm. a 60 hour cutoff for that race so watching some of them come across the finish line it was like wow, you guys, you guys have stories. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you know what? I think maybe for us, but definitely for me, it's like I'm competing for a podium spot often at a race. And so there's that motivation, but also I just want to have fun. So what's the, I mean, you know, maybe we should like talk to these people and be like, what is the motivation to spend 60 hours, you know, running just well, to complete? Yeah, just to complete something that you're not sure you can finish. I think the draw of a lot of these races, they're in the mountains. So it's spectacular scenery. It's mm-hmm. its a challenge because on the start line, it's the unknown. You know, like a marathon, you can generally know, like, I can get through this. Like, mm-hmm. I can walk it in if I need to. But when you're talking about this race was like 180K, um, which is a little over 100 miles and like, 45,000 feet of climbing. So that's like, Mm -hmm. you know, getting on the start line, like, can I do this? And I think that's a huge, huge draw for people is like pushing themselves to a place that they're not sure they can accomplish it. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I, you know, with with people I have on the show, it's often very competitive and intelligent people, but I should, maybe I should try to seek out a few more like people in the back and be like, what are you doing out here? 
Yeah, I mean, and like ultra runners especially, and it's um, a lot of like I've looked at the demographic of, of the ultra runner. They're really high educated, like mm-hmm. highly educated, which is funny to me. Like, and you're doing ultras, which seems silly sometimes, but um, yeah. most have like really cool stories. So I think that would be really, you know, if you're into it, like do that. That would be awesome. Yeah. Well, I think you, I think you probably. I try to classify people that come on the show as competitive and intelligent, but. Really, when you're out running for 60 hours, like there's something you can classify that as competitive, whether you're in the back or not. Like, so I think that would that would fit. One of the things, maybe, maybe this is like a draw of ultras for intelligent people, but like, what do you think about for all that time? I mean, you're it's just you, the trail, you know, your legs. Like, what are you thinking about for all that time? Um, on my best races, I'm present the entire mm-hmm. time. I'm like thinking about the race and what I'm doing. Um, and that, that's how I know it's a good race, but, um, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen all the time. So normally I'm breaking it into manageable, manageable chunks, trying not to let my head wander. Um, I don't listen to music, so I don't have that distraction. It just sounds like noise yeah. to me. Um, I usually try to just think about like, okay, you just need to, you know, get over this mountain pass and then you get to see your crew or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it just kind of depends too. Cause there's sometimes like your stomach goes south or your legs or, you know, it's, it's always like problem solving and you can go up over like last year at UTMB it's, it was raining, but then you go up over the pass and it's like snowing, icing, and you just have to deal with all those elements. So there, I think there's a lot more to be thinking about, like, gear wise, um, you know, do I put my poles away right now? Or do I, you know, get out my extra jacket? Um, so it's, it's more, there's more things, I guess, that keep mm-hmm. you interested <laughs> or keep you on top of it than when you're running on a road. And um, I don't mean to say running on a road is easy because to me that is like the hardest thing you could ever do. It's just like constant turnover and pushing yourself. Um, mm-hmm. Here it's like you can walk a little bit and then run a little bit so mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> i think about this is just this is a curiosity from like kind of the professional side for me i was actually out on a run i met my friend pat the other day there's a trail near my house and my friend pat did not grow up really running but he does ultras now and so my company we do skincare products for athletes he was like do you have any like anti-chafing stuff he's like i need some really bad how like I kind of think about any of that. This is a, like a product question for you, but just like any of those products seems like they're going to come off after a minute of time. Like how do you deal with not being completely chafed at the end of a race? Oh, I use, this is actually great. I use squirrels nut butter, okay. um, which is a product that is out of Flagstaff and developed by um, an ultra runner. It, it's amazing. It's like mostly like coconut butter, um, uh-huh. but it, it works like a charm. So I, I, one, I wear gear that fits me really well. Um, yeah. I've got my own signature pack, um, that fits female bodies. So it doesn't rub weird. Um, but then I use that squirrel's nut butter and it is amazing. Um, I, you know, I get maybe a little chafing, but not really. So is, is that a product made for it. chafing or is that a food? Yeah. It sounds like a food. Oh, no, no. I know it's a, it's a product made from chafing. Yeah. Check okay. it out. Squirrel butter. Um, they have like different, like, like little, um, 
like they almost look like deodorant sticks to just uh-huh. like apply. They have like little tins you can carry with you when you're running, but it works so well. Okay. So I guess yeah. if it's one of those, like, I haven't gotten into trying to develop that kind of product just because it's, it's super competitive and I'm not really mm-hmm. sure how you would differentiate it, but I hadn't heard about that. You know, everybody uses body glide, but I think it, it's only so good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I used to body glide. Um, I'm a convert, though. Yeah, so I'll have to check out and see kind of what they're doing. Um, yeah, I want to kind of jump yeah. back. Chris Thornley is the guy. Okay, Chris. Yeah. I gotta, like take all my notes here. Yeah. Um. So I kind of want to jump back for you. I saw so like you growing up. You did softball and then somehow <laughs> reluctantly found yourself in cross country. So, I mean, yeah. what, so how did you make the transition? Are you glad you made the transition considering how things turned out? Um, well, I, I always was good at running. I just didn't really like it because all my friends and like the popular girls did team sports and I was, Like, I kind of wanted to do that. So um, it was my junior year in high school, and I had done cross-country skiing for the first time that winter. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really successful. And starting to think about college and, like, you know, running was – was I was good at it. And so it was, like, a really hard thing for me to give up softball. But, like, when I did, I was like, oh, this is the right decision. So my senior year in high school, I actually didn't play softball. I ran track. For a year um that was the only time i've ever run track mm-hmm. and uh then i i got a scholarship to ski um cross country ski in college so i it, and skiing is is similar to running like we spend a lot of time in the trails and it was just kind of a natural progression from there but yeah it took a while to give up the softball <laughs> is there like did you use that as cross training now like, could you, since you're with your Achilles, could you go out and ski, assuming there's snow, could you go out and ski? Oh, yeah. Instead? Oh, yeah. I ski all winter. Totally. Yeah. I cross-country ski and I alpine ski and backcountry ski. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, do you use that as, like, part of your, say you're, say you're getting ready for UTMB or whatever, in, in your in your 12-month plan, do you say, okay, we're going to cross-train and ski over the winter as part of training, or do you do you give it up? Yeah. Um, definitely. And to me, I don't think of it as like cross training. Like it's one of the things I do, like I running takes up the majority of like, if I were to split it up, but to me, like biking and skiing, I don't see that as like cross training. I see that as outdoor activities I enjoy. And during that time of year, running in bend, is not fun. There's, Mm -hmm. there's snow, there's ice. And like, I don't really want to just like go run in that every day. Um, Mm -hmm. so skiing is much more appealing. Um, and I, I mean, I'll Alpine ski this year. I Alpine skied a bunch, which, you know, a lot of people might not classify as exercise, but (laughs) it's fun. And I, I think, you know, training or like activities should be fun. So I definitely, I like to dabble in a lot of things. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that, that kind of like theme about fun, that's what I seem to get across. I've talked to a lot of people and I'm like, you know, why do we do this? Like, it's so dumb, really, mm-hmm. you know, especially like for people to do ultras. It's like looking at it objectively, what's the point of going out and running like a hundred miles or like, 
you know, and I think the the theme that it keeps coming back to is like I have fun doing it. Like I enjoy it for whatever yeah. reason. There's some kind mm-hmm. of like enjoyment or bliss to be found. Yeah, I enjoy pushing my body and in a hundred mile race, I mean, the thing that's really cool is you get, you, you, you become vulnerable at some point, like you're stripped down to just like your raw bean and like, you know, you're, you're faced with kind of, it sounds really, really morbid, but, um, you know, just like trying to finish is like a, a tough thing to do. And I haven't found that feeling in any other sport I've done. Um, I'm mm-hmm. sure it's there, but I, I just love that when you just get to the point where it's like very simple, like you're just trying to move forward. Nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love that challenge. I wouldn't say it's, it's like blissful all the time. <laughs> Most right. of the time racing is not blissful. <laughs> that feeling of accomplishment and um, my best races, I guess the races I'm most proud of have not been my best races. Like I finished Western States one year. Um, it was awful. I had to lay down for like two hours early on. And that like, I thought there was no way I could finish, but I like made it happen. And I'm super proud of that race, despite like not, not finishing that well. It was pretty Mm -hmm. cool. Have you ever gotten to the it's point like where like understanding and hailing here? <laughs> it's really funny. Have have you gotten to the point where like your vision's starting to go black? Like like everything's starting to close in on you? Um not in an ultra. Um okay. in a VO2 max test. <laughs> okay. I've had that happen, but um no, the intensity usually isn't that high. It's more like the slow wearing of the body. Okay. Okay, I was just curious. It it happened to me. It's only happened to me once. Yeah. And it happened to me at a, a half iron event in Santa Cruz where I just the the short version is my fueling got messed up, so I didn't have any fuel on the run portion, and just the last five miles became this slow drag as like my vision started closing in. I'm trying to get to the finish line, and yeah, yeah I, it, it's it's kind of scary in one sense because I ended up in the medical tent, but on the other, like I also came away with it in somewhat of a positive sense you made me think about this um with your comment about like being stripped down to like your essence where it's like you know i didn't know how i would be when there's no possibility of podium anymore there's no point in continuing in that sense but it's like what is that what's that inner driving voice? What, what is that very raw essence going to tell you to do? Is it going to tell you to stop or are you going to mm-hmm. continue forward? Um, and so I came away with it from like this, this kind of positive aspect that I knew I was going to keep plodding along until I passed out, whether that's healthy or not, yeah. is another question, but. Well, it's, it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool to have that drive and like finish what you started. Um, I mean, to some extent you want to be careful. You don't want to do anything stupid, but like, yeah, yeah, I think that's a pretty cool thing to, to walk away with. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a, it's a a mixed thing. I, when I talked to, this is an earlier episode, a guy named Chris Douglas, he um, said he almost died at a race because he got to the point he overheated so bad. He passed out like a mile from the finish. Uh, Like, I don't know if you saw, the news about Sarah True, so she, uh, tr- pro triathlete, she passed out a mile from the finish in an Ironman event. She was getting ready to win because she had just went too hard and like didn't 
realize it until everything just kind of came down on her. But it's like, I was, I guess I struggle with trying to find the line between, like you said, it, like with ultras or, or really any race, like it doesn't matter, you know, at the end of the day, yeah. it matters to us, but it doesn't mm-hmm. matter in the grand scheme of things. So I, I struggle with where's the line between let's continue and this is dumb. I could hurt myself. Yeah. And I think like checking in with yourself is important. Like um, last year I had to take a helicopter off UTMB. I was almost done with the race and it was just, I couldn't keep going. And, you know, like at some, some extent you're like, man, I get like DNF is awful. Um, But also I want, I don't want to do that to my body. Like, yeah, if it's just me tired and I'm gonna, you know, like have a long recovery that's fine but if it's like no this could be like permanent damage or Mm -hmm. set me back years I think like asking yourself that tough question in the moment um is important and I see too many people like you know celebrating finishing with a stress fracture or something it's like no we celebrate that like that to me is like that's that's pushing that line (laughs) yeah yeah well how do you this is something that I think comes with age and experience um, as, as trite as it is to say that, like, how do you, how do you coach like a young athlete to, to figure out how to check in with themselves so they don't get, get into that situation? Um, yeah. I think realize that running or any race is not the end all say all like it's not it does not define you it's not that big a deal like it's one thing you do I think that's really important to instill is that like you don't finish at any cost like that's Mm -hmm. just not healthy and like I mean yeah push your body but know like the good kind of hurt and the bad kind. Like we, we know that we know when it's like you're pushing and everything is screaming at you, but it's like, you're, you're in control of it when it's Mm -hmm. pain that you're not in control of, or that's getting worse. That's a sign like, okay, let's, let's reevaluate where, where I'm at. Um, and I think just not putting that much emphasis on race results is, Mm -hmm. is super important for young and upcoming athletes. Yeah, I'm, I'm always big on, I, I come back to this, especially after a painful race. I always, I tell my coach and like, I'm not sure I care about racing. Like I love training. I love the day in day out of yeah. like training, but I'm like, I don't know if I care about, <laughs> care about racing. I like racing when I feel good. I don't like racing when I feel terrible. Yeah. I um, know it's not fun. So this is a question I'm asking everybody this year. Um, and this is especially prescient with you, uh, because it, it encompasses what everybody does. I like to ask um, if you can only choose one food for recovery for the rest of your life, what do you choose? Chocolate milk. <laughs> That's, I think you're the fourth or fifth person to say chocolate milk. Well, and I will say, okay, nutrition geek. I know it's, I know it's good formulated, but I actually just really like it. I like yeah. dairy. Um, I like chocolate. Um, it could be chocolate ice cream too. I'm going to be different. Chocolate ice cream is what I think. <laughs> That's a solid choice. <laughs> to, to be fair, the very first person that said it um, was Dr. Jason Karp, who was one of the authors on the chocolate milk study. So it started off yeah. with him. Yeah, yeah. Um, it just is tasty. So, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's easy to get down. Yeah, and available to a lot of people. Yes. Um, 
Stephanie, if people want to see what you're doing, get in touch with you, where can they find you? Yeah, um, on my website or stephaniehowviolet.com or on Instagram. I'm pretty active on, on Instagram, Stephanie Marie Violet. Um, I'll post lots of pictures of the Alps and uh, maybe some of me working too, because I do that here too. <laughs> <laughs> get to get a shot behind the desk one of these days. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to do that. Good deal. Thanks for coming on today, Stephanie. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to chat.